Well, welcome back, everyone. I've enjoyed this afternoon with you, and I'm excited about our last presentation, which to me is the best one, at least as far as what I enjoy talking about. Whether or not you enjoy it the best is your you know, response, but it's, for me, the most enjoyable. And um, for those of you who came in late, again, my name is Norman McNulty, and um, I graduated from Southern Adventist University in 2000 with a biochemistry degree. Graduated from Loma Linda in 2004 from medical school, and I did a residency in neurology and um, did a fellowship in EMG and EEG and that kind of thing for a year. And then my wife and I went to Trinidad for two years as missionaries. Had a great experience in ministry down there for two years in the Caribbean. And um, we just got back to Tennessee in March of this year, and I have a practice over in Lawrenceburg, Tennessee. So we're not too far from here, about three hours away. And it's nice to come back to Southern. And as I said at the very first presentation that I gave, when I was a college student, I would come to Sabbath afternoon meetings like this, like there's the Adventist Theological Society and some other things like that back in my day. I don't know what they do now, but um, I always enjoyed the Sabbath afternoon meetings. And in fact, I remember there was one theology major who, was, who gave a whole several week presentation on the sanctuary dealing with the Desmond Ford issues, and that was way back then. So I've always had an interest in these things. And when I went out to medical school, um, I figured, you know, if I, if I can devote my mind to studying science really hard, if I take even just a little bit of time to also study the Bible, that would be a really nice combination to have. And so that's what I did when I was out of medical school and in residency as well. After I finished medical school, I spent a lot of time studying the Bible, studying our message, and trying to learn these things so that I could share it with others in a way that hopefully makes sense. And so I enjoy doing that as well. So this is sort of what I do on the, the side, but I enjoy it. Um, why don't we have a word of prayer, and we'll get into our last presentation for the afternoon. Father in heaven, <clears throat> we thank you for the opportunity we've had this afternoon to study the sanctuary doctrine. And now as we get into some of the passages from the book of Hebrews, I pray that it will be clear and that it will inspire us to be part of a special group of people living in the last days of Earth's history. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first hour, sanctuary message in Adventism. Second hour, the sanctuary message in Desmond Ford's attack. This hour, the sanctuary message in the last generation. Okay. How many of you have studied the book of Hebrews? Good. Several of you. Okay, many of you have not. That's okay. Although, a year from now, that wouldn't be okay. Um, you know, we as God's people should study and know what we believe. And the book of Hebrews is actually a very systematic book. There are some books in the Bible that are not so systematic, like 1 Corinthians is more like selected messages. But if you look at Romans, Hebrews, Daniel, Revelation, those books are very systematic. They follow a clear theme, and there's a clear intent that the author has. And Paul has a very clear purpose for writing the book of Hebrews. Why did Paul write the book of Hebrews? He wrote it in about 66 AD, about four years before Jerusalem was destroyed. And he was concerned because the Jewish Christians were hanging on to the Jewish rites and ceremonies, even though Christ had done away with them. And in four years, their city was going to be destroyed. And Paul wanted to make sure that they realized that their hope was not in Jerusalem. Their hope was in the new Jerusalem. 
And so that was one of the first reasons he wrote the book. And he also showed them that the sanctuary is now in heaven, it's not on earth. The sanctuary service here on this earth it had its purpose, but when Jesus died on the cross, all of that transferred to the sanctuary in heaven, and Jesus is our high priest, not the, the Levitical priest here on this earth. It's Jesus in heaven, and that's where you're to look. So that, that's really what Paul was trying to get at, but he gets into some very specific issues. What I'm going to do just to start off is to show you how Paul develops some very key points in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 1, Paul sets out to prove that Jesus is God. And the way he proves that Jesus is God is he quotes God the Father. And in verse 8, God the Father says to the Son, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. So on the basis of the word of God the Father, God the Father says, Jesus the Son is God, and your throne is forever and ever. So if you want to have a divine stamp of approval saying that Jesus really is God, Hebrews 1 tells us, based on scripture, that God the Father says to the Son, you are God. Okay, then what's Hebrews 2 about? Hebrews 2 shows that Jesus truly was a man. Starting in verse 14, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. How many more adjectives did Paul need to use? He also himself likewise took part of the same. That's pretty clear. Okay. Um, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death. And then going on, verse 16, it says, He didn't take on the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. And then in verse 17, it says, In all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. Now you see the sanctuary language coming in here. Chapter 1, Jesus truly is God. Chapter 2, Jesus truly was man, and because of that, and he was in all things made like us, because of that he could be a merciful and faithful high priest. In verse 17, for in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able also to help them that are tempted. So the first two chapters basically make the point. Jesus is our high priest, and in order for him to be our high priest, he has to be God. Because you need God to forgive your sins. Man isn't going to be able to do that for you. You need God to forgive your sins. But you also need a high priest who can be your advocate, someone who can help you because he's walked in your shoes. He knows what it's like to be in your shoes. He was, he was tempted as well. So he's truly God. He's truly man. Chapter 3 just goes through some points. Paul's like, well... And in case you're wondering why you need this help, do you remember your forefathers, those guys that murmured and complained in the wilderness over and over again until finally God said, okay, I'm done with you. You're not going to enter in. You've complained too many times. Despite the fact that I parted the Red Sea for you, despite the, the fact that you heard my voice speak from the mount, despite the fact that I supplied manna for you day after day after day, and you still think that I'm not a good God, what more can I do? So that's why you need a high priest. You need help because you're, you're of the same line as your forefathers who murmured and complained in the wilderness all those years. So then you come then to chapter 4. God talks about entering into an experience of rest, which is defined by the Sabbath. And we may be wondering, man, 
How am I going to be able to enter into this experience of rest? I don't see how that's possible. Verse 14 says, Sing then, this is Hebrews 4, Sing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our profession. Now notice this, verse 15. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly into the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So what, what is Paul saying here? Look, chapter 1, Jesus is God. Chapter 2, he's man. He also himself likewise took part of the same. He took the seed of Abraham, which by the way, that's after the fall, not before the fall, seed of Abraham. Abraham, you know, well after Adam. He took on him the seed of Abraham, so you have Jesus is fully God. He's fully man, and we need help because if you want to admit it to yourself, we have a tendency when the first thing goes wrong, rather than praising the Lord for our trials, we're like the children of Israel murmuring, murmuring and complaining, oh boy, look what God's doing to us again this time. And God is saying, look, you can get out of that cycle, you can get out of that rut, we have a high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, and he was tempted in all points like we are. He was tempted to get discouraged. He was tempted to get frustrated. He was tempted in all those points, yet without sin. And because he walked in our shoes, he understands what it's like, so you can come boldly to the throne of grace where he is at to get help so that when you are tempted, he can help you. That's what Jesus is doing as our high priest. And then he continues on, and we're going to come back to that point. I'm just showing you the high points. Then in chapter 5, Paul starts to get into some further explanation. He's like, you know, the, the priests in the earthly service, they offered gifts and sacrifices for sins. But Christ, he was of a different order. He was from the order of Melchizedek. And when because Christ was... a from the order of Melchizedek, you know, he went through a different experience. And in verse 7 it says, "...who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplication with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death, and was heard in that he feared, though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him, called of God, and high priest after the order of Melchizedek." Now, what's Paul saying when he says Christ was made a priest after the order of Melchizedek? And almost under divine inspiration, he's starting to see the, the ears of the listeners who are reading this writing. They're like, hmm, high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Which, by the way, who is Melchizedek? Hebrews 7, he goes into a further explanation. He says... Melchizedek, there was no record of his beginning. There's no record of where he ended without beginning of days, without end of life. We have no record of where Melchizedek came from. We have no record of where he went. And Christ is after, is of an order of priesthood like that. There's no record of where 
Christ begin? From everlasting to everlasting, he is God. There is no record of his ending. From everlasting to everlasting, he is God. And he's trying to make this point that, look, Christ is qualified to be this priest because he learned obedience through the things that he suffered. And the children of Israel, they murmured and complained when they suffered, but he learned obedience when he suffered. And so that qualifies him to be this priest after the order of Melchizedek. And then he, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this was Paul speaking, verses 11 to 14, he says, of whom we have many things to say and hard to be uttered, seeing ye are dull of hearing. For when for the time ye ought to be teachers, you have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. For everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe, but strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. And if I may take some liberty here to, to say what Paul was saying here in modern language, this is what Paul would be saying. Hey, Seventh-day Adventists, wake up. Come on. Why am I having to explain to you something that should be so basic? Here we are in 66 AD back then. Here we are in 2012, 168 years after 1844. And we still can't understand the sanctuary message. How long is it going to take for you to wake up? You should have been teaching this to others now. Why am I teaching it to you like it's the first time you've ever heard this? You should be out there proclaiming the three angels' messages to be participating in the closing work of this earth's history because we've been given the most important and amazing message ever given to man, and we're just sitting around wondering what our message is, and when guys like Desmond Ford come along, we're like, wow, he actually had some good points. I'm not sure if I believe in the sanctuary anymore. And this is just what Paul says under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And notice specifically, he says, if you use milk, in verse 13, you are unskillful in the word of righteousness. In other words, if you want to understand righteousness by faith, it's not the milk of the word. You need to get into the meat of the word. Yes, we're saved by grace through faith, but there's a lot to that. The devils believe and tremble too. It's more than just believing in a theory. So... That's chapter 5. Then chapter 6, he gets into some more interesting issues. He talks about how we're supposed to follow after the forerunner, Jesus, who's entered into the veil. Chapter 7, he proves that Jesus is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, after he took that detour to rebuke the Hebrews for not knowing that message. And then you come to chapter 8. Chapter 8, verse 1. Chapter 8, verse 1 is a summary statement of the first seven chapters. Now, the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. So what has Paul done in the first seven chapters? He says, look, Jesus is God. Jesus is man. He was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. He's a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And when he suffered, he learned obedience. He didn't murmur and complain like our forefathers. And because he is without beginning of days or end of days, the way we have no record of Melchizedek, Jesus is therefore qualified to be our high priest. And I love how he says actually in chapter 7, 25, wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God. God by him, saying he ever liveth to make intercession for them. 
So Jesus is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1, and he's ever living to save to the uttermost. That means he can save each one of us, amen? The sanctuary message is at the heart of salvation. Jesus is living to make intercession so that his death on the cross will have meaning and value and that it will save us. Now, that's the first, that's the summary of the first seven chapters, and it culminates with Jesus being seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, I talked about this a little bit, um, but when you have in Revelation chapter 4, the throne being before the, the seven lamps, um, you have in the holy place then the throne of God, where you have the two stacks of six loaves of bread, where God, Jesus says, I am the bread of life, and he says, I and my Father are one. So you have equal stacks of six loaves of bread. This is the throne of God in the holy place. And then in Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, we see the throne of God had wheels of fire, so it moves then to the most holy place in 1844. So when it says in Hebrews 8 that Jesus is our high priest, seated at the right hand of the throne of God, that means Jesus is here at the right hand. And then when it moves into the most holy place, that means Jesus is here and the Father is here. So Jesus is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, here's where I want to go. What we are going to see now, based on the fact that Jesus is our high priest, seated at the right hand of the throne of God, what practical implication does that have for us as Seventh-day Adventists living after 1844, living after the time that Jesus entered into the most holy place? Well, let's go to Hebrews chapter 6. And I want to start in verse 18. Hebrews chapter 6, starting in verse 18. <clears throat> that by two immutable things, in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation, who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. So we're fleeing from the, the power of sin, the power of temptation, and we're trying to find refuge, we're trying to lay hold upon the hope set before us. What's, what's that hope? Verse 19. Which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil. Now, the King James, that doesn't word it the greatest. When it says into that within the veil, the marginal reading would better read, and which entereth the presence behind the veil, and the word presence is capitalized. So we're speaking, and then verse 20 makes it very clear. So our hope, which is the presence behind the veil, what is that hope? What is that presence? Verse 20, whither the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus made an high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Okay. So what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to go through the veil, and there's a veil here between the outer courtyard and the holy place, and now there's a veil from the holy place to the most holy place. Who has already gone through that veil? The forerunner. Paul's using race language here. What's a forerunner? 
It's the one who runs first. And if he runs first, that means the people who follow after him run the same route, right? So we're told to enter within the veil that Jesus is the forerunner, and we understand that when he entered within the veil, from our understanding of Hebrews, from Daniel, from Revelation, he initially entered into the holy place because he's standing in the candlesticks in Revelation 1. In Revelation 4, John is um, before the throne, um, and he, or he's at the throne and he sees the candlesticks. We see Jesus at the altar of incense in Revelation 8. And then in Revelation 11, 19, we see the most holy place opened up. So Jesus is the forerunner who through all those years of time during the 2300-day prophecy. He goes from the cross, he dies on 31 AD, then he enters through the veil into the holy place, and in 1844 he goes into the most holy place, and we are told to enter into the veil as well, to lay hold on the hope that is set before us. Now let me show you another verse, and this is where things get very interesting to me, and in fact I remember discovering this. I was having a Friday night Bible study with some very dear sisters, they are saints, um, down in Trinidad. And we were having a Friday night Bible study at the Adventist Hospital there. And, and um, they started asking me questions. What do you think this verse means? And we just started drawing it on the board and talking about it. And this is where some of my ideas for this afternoon's presentation came from. Let's go to verse 19 of Hebrews chapter 10. <coughs> Hebrews chapter 10 starting in verse 19. So we've already been told that Jesus is, is our forerunner who's entered within the veil. Now let's look at Hebrews chapter 10. And by the way, so Jesus is our forerunner. He's entered in the veil. He was seated at the right hand of the throne of God um, in the holy place from 31 to 1844 in the most holy place from 1844 onward. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 10 starting in verse 19. Having therefore, brethren, what? Boldness to enter into the holiest. And by the way, that's the word tahagia, which means holy places. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holy places by what? The blood of Jesus. Also by what? By a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through what? through the veil, that is to say his flesh, and then he says, and having an high priest over the house of God. So you, there you see Jesus as the high priest. This is very interesting to me. We're to have boldness to enter into the holy places by the blood of Jesus and also by a new and living way. So let's, I'm going to create some space up here. So based on Hebrews chapter 10, what two things do we need if we're going to enter with boldness through the veil? We need, number one, the blood of Jesus. And number two, we need the new and living way that he has consecrated for us. Okay? So, in other words, if Jesus is the forerunner, that means we are to follow after him. He entered within the veil. We are supposed to enter with boldness through the veil. And in order for us to get through these two veils, we need the blood of Jesus and we need this new and living way. So, let's look at it a little further. 
what's this new and living way? It says, by a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. What does that mean? So the new and living way is what has been consecrated for us. It's the veil, which is what? His flesh. Well, what's, have we seen anything about the flesh of Jesus in the book of Hebrews? He also himself likewise took part of the same, in all points was tempted like as we are yet without sin, so we can come boldly to the throne of grace. We can enter with boldness. What's this new and living way? It's the veil that represents his flesh, which represents the life of Jesus. So here, here's what we have then. Hebrews 10 says, having therefore brethren boldness to enter into the holiest or the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say his flesh. That's the same thing as saying, seeing then that, that we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us therefore come boldly into the throne of grace that we may, may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need because he was tempted in all points like as we are yet without sin. Here's the point. The, f the veil naturally is a barrier to keep you from the courtyard into the holy, from getting into the holy place. And the second veil is a barrier to keep you from going from the holy place to the most holy place. Does that make sense? Yet scripture says we can have boldness to go through both veils and we can come straight to the throne of grace. Is that good news? Now, what are the conditions to being able to come boldly to this throne of grace? The blood of Jesus, also the new and living way, which actually represents, well, let me read it again. It's a new and living way which he has consecrated for us, and um, let me make sure I say it right, by a new and living way which he has consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say his flesh, let me simplify this here. In order to get through the veil, we need the new and living way, which is the life of Jesus, which is the life that was tempted in all points like as we are, which means he took our human nature. Tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. So how do we come with boldness? It's sort of like this. You have a gatekeeper at the veil, theologically speaking, if you get what I'm getting at. And so, when you come to the first veil, the gatekeeper says, okay, do you have the blood of Jesus? Yes, I do, good. Do you have his life? Yes, I do, good, you can come through. Then you come to the second veil. The gatekeeper says, do you have the blood of Jesus? Yes, I do, good. Do you have his life? Yes, I do, okay, come boldly on in. Here's the first point. Remember Jesus is the forerunner? Here, here's the key point. Jesus is the forerunner. Jesus died on the cross. He shed his blood after living a perfect life, meaning he was a perfect sacrifice. Jesus then comes at his ascension to the veil. And if there's a gatekeeper, they can say, okay, Jesus, do you have your blood? Yes, it is. yes you do. You shed your blood on the cross. 
Did you live a perfect life? Yes, you did. Come right on through. He's the forerunner. Then he sits at the right hand of the throne of God. And then in 1844, as he moves from the holy place to the most holy place, based on the criteria of Hebrews, he still has his blood that he shed on, on the cross. He still has his perfect life, and he can come right on through to the most holy place. And so when we read Hebrews 10, 19, and 20, speaking to God's people today, the question is, do you have the blood of Jesus and do you have his righteous life? And this is the salvation process because salvation includes his blood and his life. It includes justification and sanctification. It's not one without the other. And you have some people who say it's grace only, justification only, don't worry about sanctification. Some people focus so much on sanctification you never hear about forgiveness. And it's both, and here's how I explain it. So you hear the preacher preaching, we can have victory over sin, and by the power of God, he can transform us, and I believe that, amen and amen. And yet, you're not sure if Jesus has forgiven your sins. And so you come to the gate and you're like, yeah, I have Jesus' life. I've been staying away from the bad food. I haven't been watching TV. I haven't been going to the movies. I haven't been doing this. I haven't been doing that. I haven't been doing that. And then it's like, well, have your sins been forgiven? Oh, boy, I have a pretty ra bad record. I don't know. Huh. Look, if you don't have faith to believe that Jesus' blood has forgiven your sins, there is no way that you're going to have faith to believe that he can give you victory over sin in your life. They go together. And you have to believe that he's forgiven your sins in order to live a victorious life. And when you have both, you can come boldly to the throne of grace because you have his, blood, you have his life and you can go right through now since 1844 to the most holy place of the sanctuary in heaven where Jesus is saying, you know what? I know what it's like to walk in your shoes. I was tempted the way you were tempted. I know what it's like to be the way you are. And yet I know what it's like to always resist temptation. Let me help you. And so that is the first element of following Jesus, who is a forerunner, who has gone before us. But you know, there's more to the story. And we have, this is probably the, the last section. There's more to the story. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We can come boldly to the throne of grace. And we see in the book of Hebrews that he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And we see in Hebrews 8, verse 6, that at the right hand of the throne of God, he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. That's the new covenant. And what is the new covenant? What does God do in the new covenant? Hebrews 8, 10, and 11, and onward, and Hebrews 10, 16, and 17, he writes his law into our hearts and minds. So Jesus, he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He's the mediator of a better covenant, seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He wants us to come by a new and living way with boldness all the way to the throne with his blood and with his life. And when we do that, as the mediator of the new covenant, seated at the right hand of the throne of God, he works to write his law into our hearts and into our minds. It's an intellectual understanding and a spiritual understanding. It's not just in the head, it comes out in how you live your life. So if God writes his law into your hearts and minds, 
Would it be fair to say that you would be a commandment keeper? I think so. God himself, who wrote the law on to tables of stone, actually writes that law into your heart and mind. That's what he's doing as our high priest in heaven. That means that, and let me create some space again up here. That means Jesus seated at the right hand of the throne of God as our high priest, mediator of the better covenant. When he writes his law into our hearts and minds, that means he will have commandment keepers. And so that's one of the things that happens when we come to the throne of grace. But Jesus is doing something else at the right hand of the throne of God, and it's connected to the race that he has been the forerunner of. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And this is a very familiar passage. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Notice a few things here. Jesus is the forerunner. Right? Based on Hebrews 6, Jesus is the forerunner. What are we called to do here in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1? Run the race that has been set before us. How was it set before us? Jesus, the forerunner, ran ahead of us. And how are we to run this race? It says run with what? looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. So Jesus ran the race, forerunner. He finishes at the right hand of the throne of God, and ultimately that means in the most holy place because he ends his work as our high priest in the most holy place before he comes back. And I know he does some things as he's coming out as well, but as far as the final atonement, the blotting out of sin, all of that kind of thing, he, as far as being at the right hand of the throne of God, that ends in the most holy place. So in Hebrews 8, he is our high priest seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What is he in Hebrews chapter 12 seated at the right hand of the throne of God? He's the author and the finisher of our faith. Author, finisher. That means there's a beginning point and there's a finishing point. And there's a race. And we're to run that race with patience. And the way we run that race with patience is to look unto Jesus. And we lay aside every weight, the sin which does so easily beset us. The only way we can get rid of sin in our life is to keep our eyes on Jesus all the time. And the question I ask is, if you can see Jesus hanging on the cross for you, name me which sin you want to keep hanging on to. Because your sin put him there. If you really love Jesus, you'll want that sin to come out of your life. Okay. So, 
Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith, seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He's helping us to run the race with patience that is set before us. And by the way, in Hebrews 6, we see he's the author of eternal salvation to all them that obey him. He's learned obedience through the things that he suffered. But here's the thing. He helps us to start the race. He's the author of our race. And how did Jesus run the race? Let Hebrews 12 speak for itself. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. And the word endured is the same word as patience, but in English, we don't say patience, right? But it's the same word. So he endured the cross. It's the same word as patience. So Jesus demonstrated patience. And so in other words, he endured the cross. He's the author of our faith, but he's also the finisher. He finishes at the right hand of the throne of God. So where does this race start? starts at the cross. And in the sanctuary, you see that. Jesus is the author of our faith. But look, he doesn't, it doesn't finish at the cross. That's where it starts. And the cross is where everything in salvation and Christianity starts. But he's the finisher. He helps us to run this race with his blood, with his life. He's the forerunner. We go through the holy place. We come to the tables of showbread. We eat the word of God. We come to the candlesticks. We witness what we share. We come to the altar of incense. We pray for help and divine aid. We come to the most holy place to obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And so the race finishes at the mercy seat at the the right hand of the throne of God. And there's something very fascinating about this. I want you to go to Revelation chapter 3 to the message to Laodicea. The message to Laodicea, there's something specific about what needs to happen for us to get to the right hand of the throne of God. We start the race, but we want to finish the race. This is the message to Laodicea. Starting in verse 20, Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. In verse 21, to him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. Now, what's the, what's the point here? First of all, we need to let Jesus come in. And you know what the problem with Laodicea is? And Laodicea means judged people, or the church of the judgment hour, the sanctuary, all of that. And yet Jesus is saying, let me come in. You like this Desmond Ford gospel where you're covered with the righteousness of Christ, but your heart doesn't change. But that's not going to save you. I need to come into your heart and clean up your life. And when you let me come in, then you can overcome as I overcame, and when I overcame, I sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, and when you overcome, I will grant you to sit with me in my throne because you will have finished the race. How do we overcome? 1 John 5, 4 says, this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. How did Jesus overcome? Through his faith. So if, 1 John 5, 4, if we overcome as Jesus overcame, and if you need faith to overcome, what does that say about the faith of those in Laodicea who overcome? They have the faith of Jesus. Because it, we, we're to overcome as Jesus overcame, and if it takes faith to overcome, we need Jesus' faith to overcome. 
So when we finish this race, and notice, Jesus is at the right hand of the throne of God, working to write his law into our hearts and minds as our high priest. He's at the right hand of the throne of God as the author and finisher of our faith, helping us to run with patience the race that is set before us. He helps us to start. He's the forerunner. He shows us all the way through. We have his blood. We have his life. And through the grace of God, through faith, we develop that faith and continue to overcome us. He overcome, overcame. And we go through the last crisis of earth's history. And Jesus can look to his judgment hour, Laodicea, and people and say, you overcame the way I overcame because you have the faith that I have. The faith of Jesus. Now, that is what Jesus is trying to do at the right hand of the throne of God as our high priest and as the author and finisher of our faith. As our high priest, he's working to write his law into our hearts and minds so that he will have commandment keepers. As the author and finisher of our faith, he's helping us to run with patience the race that is set before us so that we can get to the finish line and overcome as he did so that we can have his faith. Now, is there one Bible verse that summarizes that point? No, Revelation 14, 12. It's different. Revelation 14, 12 specifically says, here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. That's the, th that's the third angel's message. So the third angel's message describes the group of people that Jesus is working in heaven to develop right now. Jesus, he's the forerunner. He came to this earth. He lived a perfect life. He was the lamb slain on the cross. And then he ascended into heaven as our forerunner through the veil into the holy place and then into the most holy place. He's been seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And now in heaven, in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary, if you could see Jesus seated at the right hand of the throne of God right now, he is working to write his law into our hearts and minds so that he will have a group of people who will keep his commandments. And his commandments are a reflection of his character, a transcript of his character. So he's trying to write his character into our hearts and minds so that we will be a demonstration of his character and he knows that in order for us to develop his character so that we can keep his commandments we must pass through the trials of life and learn how to respond the way Jesus responded which is why in Hebrews 5 it says though he were a son yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered when we go through trials we develop patience we develop character and we come through the fires of affliction like gold tried in the fire with the character of Jesus. And when we pass through those trials, then we will be ready to pass through by having developed the experience of the third angel's message. We will be ready to pass through that final struggle of the history of the world known as Jacob's time of trouble, which in Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, it says, at that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince which standeth for the children of thy people. This is what is happening. Daniel chapter 7, the father and the son, they sit down at the beginning of the judgment, but Jesus is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, but, and when he finishes the work that he is doing at the right hand of the throne of God, writing his law into our hearts and minds, helping us to run with patience, 
patience the race that is set before us, helping us to develop the faith of Jesus through the trials of life. When that work is finished, Michael stands up. His work in the sanctuary at the right hand of the throne of God is finished, and he will say, are there any further questions? Here are they that keep the commandments of God, who have the patience of the saints and the faith of Jesus. This is the group of people that I have been working to develop since I went into the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary in 1844. That is the purpose of Christ's work in heaven right now. He is specifically there to develop a generation of people living at the end of time who will be a transcript of his character. And those are the people who in Revelation 18.1 it says, I saw another angel come down from heaven having great power and the earth was lightened with its glory. This is the glory of God, the character of God, lightening the earth with God's character, with his glory. And when I see that, when I study that, my question is, why would we want to waste our time with anything else here on this earth? Who cares who wins the playoffs? Who cares the, who the so-called hottest star is in Hollywood? Who cares what the latest fashions are? Our focus, whatever our job is, whatever our calling is, is to be that people that Jesus will stand up for in Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. Our whole focus, all, our whole purpose for existence is to be that group of people who Jesus places that seal of God in our foreheads, who he stands up for. And you know that group of people that are described in Revelation 14 as the 144,000 who follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. And you know why they follow the Lamb? They learn to run the race. Jesus was the forerunner. And whatever Jesus went through, they took up their cross daily and said, I, I will follow you too, Jesus, wherever it takes me. And that's our message. That's the message that will prepare people to stand in the day of God. We don't need more watered-down, substanceless messages. It may not necessarily cause people to go the wrong way, but it's not helping people to be ready for Jesus to come. We need messages that are going to prepare people for Jesus to come. And let me go back to one last quote that I read at the beginning. Testimonies, Volume 5. Um, Testimonies, Volume 5, page 575. The great plan of redemption as revealed in the closing work of these last days should receive close examination. The scenes connected with the sanctuary above should make such an impression upon the minds and hearts of all that they may be able to impress others. Listen, I hope you'll go away from this seminar today saying, I am so convicted by this message that I'm going to share it with others. And when you share it, it will impress them. If that doesn't happen, then I, by the grace of God, I guess I didn't do what I was supposed to do. Continuing on, all need to become more intelligent in regard to the work of the atonement, which is going on in the sanctuary above. When this grand truth is seen and understood, those who hold it will work in harmony with Christ to prepare a people to stand in the day of God, and their efforts will be successful. Listen, that's our work. Our efforts are to work in harmony with Christ to prepare a people to stand in the day of God because this is a grand truth that needs to be seen. It needs to be understood, and it's time to remove it sort of from the rubbish heap of like, oh, that's the sanctuary. It's just a bunch of bulls and goats and blood and whatever. No, this is talking about what Jesus is, in, is doing in heaven right now for us. And I'm going to close with one last verse, Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. 
This will be our last message. Hebrews, verse, Hebrews chapter 9, verses 24 through 28. Hebrews 9, 24 through 28. For Christ has not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us, nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entereth into the holy place every year with blood of others. For them must he have offered suffered since the foundation of the world. But now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. Notice this. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. And you know what it means to look for him in this word? The word in the Greek means to look with eager expectation. It's not, not, not like, oh yeah, Jesus might come in five or ten years. And Actually, it would be kind of inconvenient if he came right now because I just bought a house or I just started a practice or I'm in school right now and I want to finish life first and then Jesus can come. No. These are people that are saying, man, Jesus is my best friend. He's in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary. He's working to write his law into my heart and mind. I want to be ready when he comes. I can't wait for my best friend to come back. And that's the type of people Jesus is going to come back for. He will come back the second time without sin. The reason why he comes back without sin is because he's blotted your sin out in the judgment with his blood. That's our message. So by the grace of God, we will be faithful to that message. Thank you very much for coming. It was a blessing for me to be able to share this. I'm going to have a closing prayer and then we, we can open it up to questions. So let's, let's have a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity we've had to study the sanctuary we know there's so much more that we could have studied, but we thank you that you've made things crystal clear, that you are seated in the right hand of the throne of God, waiting to stand up so that you will have a group of people who keep the commandments of God, have the patience of the saints, and the faith of Jesus. May we each be among that number, and I pray that Jesus would come soon. This is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.